Hey, welcome back, everyone. As promised, it is season two of Revenue on the Rocks. And if you listened to our last episode of the last season, I mentioned that we took this break to try to reflect, think about how we could improve, get some feedback. Proud to say we did it. Talked to some people, listened. And basically for this season, we heard that you wanted to hear kind of more behind the scenes with Ben and I. Really like you're diving into one of our debates, conversations, really see what it's like to have that marketing and sales relationship. So that's what we're going to be doing, trying to take you even more behind the scenes. This first one is going to be extremely behind the scenes because it's basically a debate Ben and I have already have. But that being said, it'll probably be Ben and I a little more than guests this season. If you do have any guests or anyone, we'll still open to it, but we're going to try to keep it reenacting our everyday conversations. Before we dive into this episode, Ben, it's been a while. What have you been up to during our break and what you drinking for the first one back? Yeah, good to be back here, Natalie. I've certainly missed this. Um, it's been an exciting summer. I got the heck out of Phoenix since it was, you know, 110 every single day for the last three months and spent some time in Colorado, Wisconsin, Michigan with friends and family. So it's always good to get back to my roots a little bit and also get the heck out of the heat. So I uh, just got back to the valley here about a week and a half ago. So happy to be home. And I am currently on a Coors Banquet kick, which probably has something to do with like the three weeks I spent in Colorado. I feel like every weekend you had some sort of wedding too this this summer. Like every single Friday, I felt like Ben was like in weddings, so many weddings, which I had a few this summer, but like I felt like you might have broken the record. I mean, for the love, all I, I feel like all I did all summer long was go to weddings. And then, uh, you know, the wedding season finally ended and then my older sister got engaged and now there's another wedding in coming up in February. So uh, it's never ending. Glad to hear you're back. A big update on my end is I moved apartments. So one, it's still a work in progress. Don't judge me for if you're watching this, you'll see it's just like a white wall behind me. Sorry, I've, I'm going to get some decorations up. But if you notice, it looks a little different. That's why. It's funny, the new place I moved to is like right near two really popular bagel spots. This is like a very New York City story. But so when we moved, we almost like couldn't move our stuff in because there were two competing bagel lines and we had to like push people through. <laughs> uh, so it like sounds great in theory, but in reality, when it's like Saturday morning and you want to leave your apartment, it's kind of annoying. And so as I mentioned earlier, I'm excited for this one because this was literally a debate Ben and I were having about a month ago. And in the middle of it, I paused and was like, we need to do this on the podcast. And essentially, the topic that we want to talk about was like, what actually causes B2B buyers to buy? I was working on some positioning work. As every marketer knows, like messaging positioning, it's so frustrating. It feels like it's constantly changing. Your market's constantly changing. And it feels like so much of whether or not a buyer is going to buy you over a competitor is the positioning work you do. And Ben had some different thoughts about that. So I thought, you know, as a marketer, I've always just seen it as you paint this perfect story. Of course, your prospects will listen. And I never really thought about on the sales side, the other things that mattered. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How kind of like what makes buyers buy and how much is positioning really important in that? Yeah, I think just to kind of dive right into it, Natalie, I think something that I experience a little bit, and I think I speak for a, a lot of sales members, is I get just like a little bit of fatigue everything, every time I log on to LinkedIn, right? Because I'm reading you know, a post about how product-led growth or um, a, a new one-pager or like a well-done competitor one-pager or kind of like, honestly, a lot of these like kind of fringe or fluffy assets or things that go into a deal cycle can really like tilt the scales for you and your team. And it's always some like dramatic like, was your team not hitting their number? You know what you really need? You really need this like software to help build like a competitor one pager or something. It's like, you know, 
not at all what you should be focusing on if you're like really, really missing targets. And I think oftentimes teams overcomplicate things for a very, very simple problem. So yeah, I don't know if you want to like fully dive into it right off the cuff here, Natalie, but that was kind of like the impetus for the conversation around. I think the marketer's perspective is there's a lot of little things, fringe things that can help salespeople. But at the end of the day, like winning and losing deals oftentimes does not come down to what does your website look like, that big rebrand you just did, or that one pager you just pushed out. This is where we definitely had debate. And I think we'll get into I think aspects you're 100% right. I do think everyone's like overselling how sometimes individual tactics, strategies, assets can make a huge deal in the sales cycle. And ultimately, like if your sales process is broken, a small asset isn't going to fix it. But I do think it can make a big difference in the lead you bring in and the quality. But before we get into that, yeah, Ben, I guess just to start off, like in your mind, what are the most important things that make or break a deal, right? Highly competitive deal, like what causes in general, not just us, you to win over someone else? I'm going to absolutely blow everybody's mind here, but it's like, again, I'm being facetious and sarcastic. It's so simplistic. Like if you are losing deals consistently in today's economic climate, which is a hard environment to sell in, I get it because you're constantly hearing about how budgets are cut or you're too expensive. Here's an idea. Have you ever considered slashing your prices by 30%? Very unpopular opinion. Your investors probably aren't going to be stoked about it. But at the end of the day, if you're not hitting any revenue targets and you're consistently losing, let's just say because of price, for example, like I just talked to a head of sales in another company not too long ago, and he was kind of discussing how they've been struggling like a little bit. And, you know, they're kind of walking with you some of the, the pricing models that they have. And I was like, hey, have you ever just considered like discounting, like 50% discounts? Like what kind of discounts do you all offer? And he's like, oh, you know, percentage here or there. And I'm like, why don't you just slash your prices in half? I bet you close more deals. And it was such a simple, like anybody could thought of that, right? Like it's nothing groundbreaking, but to him, it was like, oh my gosh, I'd never consider that. Like I thought about buying this like software for automation or hiring a bunch more BDRs so we can get more leads. It's like, why don't you just try like slashing your prices a little bit and see if that helps. Like everybody's kind of hurting right now in the economy and budgets are tight. Like how flexible are new commercials and, and your pricing? So to get back to your question, Natalie, at the end of the day, from a salesperson's perspective, who's been doing this for a while now. People buy for really three main reasons. Number one, does your product have the features that I need to solve my problem? Number two, do I like you in the sales process that you ran as a person? And number three, does your pricing fit my budget? And if it doesn't, guess what? There's probably a competitor whose budget does. And like a lot of times, as much as we hate to admit this, it ultimately does oftentimes just come down to who's a little bit more cost-friendly, who can be a little bit more flexible on commercial terms, or who has those few features um, that I really need to solve my problem. And like, while we like to think that brand and a, a new website or a one page or all these other things that are very, very helpful and very important, at the end of the day, when it comes down to which vendor am I going to select, like those are really the three things you're going to evaluate. Did I like Natalie? Does her product solve my problem? And does the price match my budget? And did she work with me on commercials? If the answers to all those are yes, you're likely going to win that deal. I want to start with pricing because I actually do think this is a lever people don't pull enough and not just like slashing prices, but the pricing model. Like one thing I've been hearing a lot of recently, like usage-based pricing was seen, especially in the PLG world, as most innovative, like the gold standard for pricing. And I've been hearing constantly a lot of pushback on usage-based pricing, seat-based too. And I think especially right now when the economy is bad and people need to predict how much they're going to spend, people are so sick of suddenly like having an unexpected cost on them and then it reflecting badly on them. Or I'm sure right now I was thinking with the economy, unfortunately, with layoffs, there were probably a lot of people who signed a year-long seats agreement, lost half their company, are now paying for empty seats. 
So it doesn't even have to just be slashing for the sake of slashing. Just like rethink your model because I think best practices that were a few years ago really trendy right now are actually like, at least from what I'm hearing, are not how people want. I totally agree. And I just think, again, it's oftentimes people are trying to come up with nuances or very complicated solutions to a very simple problem. And, you know, the example that I use with that friend of mine who I was chatting about, um, who's also a sales leader is, I was like, listen, man, if, if you were trying to, to sell your home and you couldn't sell it and I was your realtor, what's the best way to sell that home? Would, would, would it be really impactful for me to come to you and say, we're going to do all these marketing initiatives. Um, we're going to pay for this software that's going to help like the exposure of your home. Or if I was like, hey, I think it's overpriced. We should probably drop the price like 30 grand and I bet it'll sell right away. Like, which one of those do you think like probably realistically gets the job done? It's the latter, obviously, right? Like, and, it, and it's, it's always a touchy subject because you don't want to feel like you're devaluing your product. But a lot of things in the economy are outside of our control. And I think you do have to be adaptive, Natalie, to your point in the economy that you're selling in. Like a couple of years ago, it was booming. The per seat model worked really well. You could charge a whole lot. Everything was rolling and times have changed a little bit. And if you're not sort of adjusting to account for that, then I, I think you're going to be hurting a little bit. I imagine a lot of people are listening to this, especially sales reps, and they're like, yeah, I want to slash my prices. My CFO, my sales leader would never let me do that. Like, no, this is pretty hard, but do you have any suggestions for reps or even sales leaders who want to bring this up to leadership, but don't think they'll be as receptive? Mm, I don't. No, I, I don't. I think it'd be really hard if I was like still an account executive at like Square or at Front. And I went up to like our leadership team and I was like, hey, I've got a great idea. I want to start handing out 25% discounts because I know it's going to help me win more deals. They probably would not be super stoked about that whatsoever. So I think it needs to be more of a leadership conversation than an IC conversation. However, when you think about your company as a whole, from a leadership side of things, if we're missing our, our quotas quarter over quarter, that's not a great environment that sellers are going to want to be in, stay in, hire for. Uh, it can be very, very impactful all the way through the company and the brand. So I do think it is worth like, hey, we just missed our quota two quarters in a row. We can go two routes, right? We can fire a bunch of people and hire a million BDRs and hope that half of them hit their number and create more leads. We can increase our pricing knowing we're going to close less deals, but the ones that we do close are going to be higher in revenue. Or why don't we try knocking our pricing down 20% this quarter, keeping everybody in-house, keeping our quotas flat and seeing what happens there. It just is such a simple lever that everyone is so terrified to talk about or touch. If you can work with your RevOps team and calculate, okay, like if you know if we're losing at this percent clip, maybe if you can experiment for a month, like Ben said, if you can get that approved or just, you know, if you're allowed to do discounts, maybe it's like an end of quarter thing where you know you're allowed to do more discounts and then say like, hey, at these deals that we quoted this, we won 10% higher. Therefore, even if we discount it, we're going to win more or win rate's going to go up. It's hard because it's always a little bit imaginary, right? You're kind of guessing. I think CFOs especially might feel a lot more comfortable saying, oh, we're dropping price, but we're increasing win rate, so we'll win more, versus just like, wait, we're just going to drop prices. So pricing, I agree with you, Ben. I think that's a lever people don't pull enough, especially in the model. One thing I find maybe a little counterintuitive is a big part of whether people or not buy from you, you said, is if they had a good experience with a sales rep. And I mean, I can vouch for that. Like, I've definitely had reps that I really liked, so I push harder for their product or They've just given me a better vibe of the company. But I can't help but think that some of that comes from the branding. One thing I want to ask you was how is a lead that comes in that came from us from search or ads that probably doesn't know about our brand before versus a lead that came from a referral or who had listened to the podcast or knows our brand? I do think there's a little upfront work of that relationship building, that branding and positioning is building. 
obviously, as you mentioned, leads that come in that are a direct referral or come to us through some sort of like dark channel that was built by our brand typically are closed at a higher rate. But let me turn the question back around on you. Let's say a, a, a prospect comes inbound from LinkedIn. They saw an advisor's post. They love it. They're really excited. And then they get on the call and like some of our other competitors in the space, we you know, maybe run them through like a 30 minute deck. We don't ask them any questions. We run a terrible discovery call. And oh, by the way, at the end of the conversation, I'm quoting you $65,000. I think there is a baseline standard sales process that you need to have that's not awful because then it is just hurting the brand. But I do think there is some power to people coming into the sales cycle, especially as non versus competitors with an idea of your product, with your brand, what you stand for. Like I almost think it as a subconscious thing. Like it's not, we've talked about this before on the podcast. When it comes to our brand, like we right now really specialize with marketers. Like we you see most of the use cases are putting it on their website. We'll see sometimes that people in the description will say like, oh, I want a top of funnel marketing website use case. Like it feels like they're already a little bit primed to know what we work best for. And I think that's the power of positioning. Again, I'm not saying a bad sales cycle, a ridiculous price, all that, that can cancel out all the power you just put into that positioning. But if you have all those things, this makes sure you're getting the correct leads that should be going to you or your company. I agree. And I, and I also think there needs to be a lot of alignment here between you know marketers and the sellers around how sellers run discovery. So for example, if I'm a marketer and I think that I'm going to help out Ben and the sales team a lot, and I'm like, hey, guess what team? Like I'm putting together this positioning and you know, I'm building out this maybe competitor one pager against a competitor that comes up all the time. And that competitor one pager is like really disingenuous, very inaccurate. Like we have a few players in our space that have competitor one pagers that are just like hurt their brand more than anything because it's all so inaccurate. But then, you know, from a salesperson's perspective, you're sitting there and you're like listening to your marketers tell you all of these things. And you're like, okay, like, thanks. But like, we actually don't really talk about a lot of that in discovery. So I think if you're a marketer and you're trying to build a brand or sort of like grease the, the, the rails a little bit uh, for your sales conversations, go to your sales team and say, what kind of questions do you ask in discovery? Well, why don't you ask this? Like, you know, Natalie, you're a marketer. You are the ICP that we sell to. We have these conversations all of the time around, hey, Ben, when you talked about GA4 like that, that's actually not how marketers use it. You need to frame it like this. Or, oh, wow, you guys asked that question in discovery. I didn't know that. That's good to know. Let me try to build some positioning around those questions. So I think there definitely needs to be some alignment there too. Because a lot of times, again, I see things that are just, they seem so fluffy. And when I see it on LinkedIn, for example, I'm like, man, did their sales team really ask for that? Is that really helping their sales team win? Like this competitor one page really looks terrible. Is their sales team really sending that out? Like, I don't know. And I know you're not a big content person. We covered this in a past episode. So maybe this is also a little bit of your way of selling. But I think most marketers who are listening to this are probably going to say, I don't want to make that one pager. Sales asked me for it 50 times. And I was told to make that bad one pager and they told me what to put on it. So like, I don't know if it's always marketing who makes these one pagers and maybe it's just the way you sell, but we're often told to make these things that we agree. We would rather be spending our time doing something more impactful than constant like one-off assets. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I do, I mean, we could go back down the, the one pager and the asset debate all over again from season one, but you know that I'm in the same boat with, as you. I One pagers do not tip the, the scales in deals, the customer testimonials, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's very helpful. It's very fluffy. But if you're a salesperson listening to this, that is not going to win you deals. You need to be a killer at discovery and then you can use everything else to sprinkle it as needed. So before I asked about like, oh, but what if you're a rep and you have a bad sales process or you're not allowed to slash? 
and that's why it's not going well. Do you think all of this, like asking for these one-off things, asking for better positioning, better landing pages, are reps who are frustrated by the current sales process? So they're almost trying to like band-aid it? Yeah, that could be sort of compensating for the poor sales process or the, the guardrails in which they have to operate under, even though it makes it really tough to sell. Or I also think sometimes it's also a little bit like band-aiding, I'm just going to say it like a bad product. If you have natural differentiation or if you have a clear vision, even though you might not agree with the vision one, but I'm going to say as a marketer, I think it's easier to sell your product and have a clear message across the whole thing versus if you maybe your product isn't as good as competitors or it, it isn't, you know, it is just like a copy of what everyone else is doing. You might request these things for marketing because the truth is there's just nothing there and you're hoping they're going to be able to pull something out of thin air. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Ultimately, if you're a seller and you find yourself in a scenario where your product is not able to compete head-to-head -head against your competitor and you're more expensive, I'd say you're in a really tough spot. That I don't really have a lot of great advice or tips or tricks for you there. If you're selling in an environment where you're 2x your competitor, but you're like feature parity is the same, that's just you're, in, you're selling in a tough spot. So I don't really have like a great trick for you there, but I get your point. I think it's probably true where, okay, my VP of sales won't let me apply a discount more than 3% and only if it's at the end of the quarter. And I'm selling against a competitor who actually has a couple more features than we do. Okay. Let me inundate my prospect with customer testimonials and Loom videos and Starbucks gift cards and all these different tactics that we all use. Um, but at the end of the day, to your point, it's probably just compensating for something else. I did want to, I still want to try to defend, you know, positioning and branding because I agree it doesn't save a bad sales process, but I think it does prime the prospect. So I'm curious, Ben, and I feel like your answer is going to be no, but I have hope. Have you ever been in a company that's gone through like rebranding or repositioning or website launch? And have you ever noticed it make a difference in the sales calls that you're having? Not saying, oh, I 5x my win rate, but just there's a difference in the prospect's understanding. Yeah. I mean, I can draw on, you know, one experience that I did have uh, at a former company where we went through a full rebrand. And so what this basically looked like is at the time, the company was like doing like fairly well, you know, still in like kind of a growth stage, series B, series C. And we, and we were, you know, doing, doing fairly well. Although I will say that we had missed a couple quarters in a row as a team, you know, inbound leads were super consistent or high volume. But all we heard all quarter long from our marketing team was, hey, we got this big rebrand coming, this big rebrand, this going to help, you know, prospects understand our differentiation and kind of what we are. And it's going to be really powerful for our awareness, our brand, inbound leads, blah, blah, blah. So we went through the whole rebrand, launched the new website, and it actually kind of flopped and didn't go particularly well and actually hurt the amount of inbound leads that we received. And so to answer your question, I've had an experience with a rebrand, but unfortunately it isn't maybe the most positive one that you were hoping for. Um, it was a little bit more of a negative experience, but I also think it does offer a glimpse into the world of the seller. And again, this is kind of the impetus of the entire podcast here is marketers, you have to understand the things that you do have like an incredible impact on sales, both positive and negatively. And so when you're a sales rep at a company that's kind of struggling, missed a couple of quarters in a row, lead volume is down, you know, your reps probably aren't going to be super stoked about the fact that like, hey, I haven't had an inbound lead in two weeks. And all I'm hearing about is like, you're trying to decipher like what color palette to use on the new website. That's not going to enlist a bunch of trust or like excitement from your sellers. So it's not totally on your marketers in that capacity, but just sort of be aware and like, you know, read the room. If the sales team is, is struggling a little bit and they're not getting a lot of inbound leads, they're not probably going to be too stoked to hear about like your rebrand or the new website you're building. It's funny. The other day I was talking with another marketer and I was talking about like personalization and using intent data. And they were, we were saying how like a lot of sales reps sometimes are later to adopt intent data. And 
their initial reaction was like, oh, well, are they just lazy? Like they don't want to try anything new or innovative. And in that moment, I'm going to say something that's going to be so obvious to all you salespeople. But like as a marketer, the first time I said it out loud, I was like, well, no, like their entire quota depends on them like having consistency. Like if you know sending 100 emails will result in five meetings that will result in like one op, like you know that you can send 500 emails and hit your quota. So changing things and switching it up can be really scary because there's always that chance it might not work versus marketers, right? Like we're all about experimentation. We know it might not work, but that's okay because we can just change it. But our salary, our compensation isn't depending on that. So I don't know, when it's coming back to brand and rebranding, I think it's so easy again for us marketers to be like, of course, this is going to be better, but we don't know. No matter how much testing data, user testing you've done, like you really don't know how it's going to affect your lead volume and the smallest things can make a difference. So I see why there is sometimes hesitation and frustration from sales that this is idea that like, oh, this is going to save all because it's like, okay, it could save all and it could also screw us and that's my livelihood. Exactly. It's a unique dynamic that you have to, it's like incredibly nuanced. You have to tread a little bit lightly and you just have to understand that. Like you have to understand that the decisions, fair or not, that you make on the marketing side are going to impact sellers and nine times out of 10, their compensation is based on their performance, which ultimately is sort of somewhat tied to yours. So this is... I don't know if I've ever done a great job on this. And Ben, we've worked on rebrandings together before, but like how can marketers best bring in sales so that when they do that big rebranding push, it's as much as possible. They're they're getting them excited. They're getting them bought in and getting their feedback. Because ultimately, like I always say, if you want good marketing copy, go listen to some sales calls. Like you guys probably have some of the best direct data of what our prospects, what they want to hear and how they speak and what they care about. So like how can marketing be better about bringing in sales during repositioning and rebranding? Okay. So this is where I would defend marketing a little bit, because I think coming up with competitive differentiation, excuse me, against a competitor can kind of fall flat unless you're, unless you're winning. What I mean by that is if I came up to you, Natalie, and I was like, Hey, we are losing at a 75% clip to one of our competitors. Can you come up with something that will help people understand like how we differentiate help when you're going to be like, no, I can't do that. How do you want me to do that? I don't control the product. I don't control like our win rate here. And so what I would say to any company who is in an extremely competitive market like we are, or is trying to um, come up with some sort of rebrand or rebrand or better marketing position, your first goal in doing so is taking control and of kind of like the battlefield and winning. You need to be winning against that main competitor or the other brand that you're trying to compete against. And once you have those data points or you feel like you have the momentum and you are winning, then you can understand why. So talking to your sales team and say, why do we always win against that competitor? Oh, we win because we're a little bit cheaper. Oh, we win because we have this feature and they don't, or they have a terrible sales process and you've heard X, Y, Z. And now all of a sudden you as a marketer have ammunition that you can do your thing with. But if we're not winning and you come up to me and you say, Ben, I'm going to build a one pager or like, I want to go through a rebrand to make sure people understand how we differentiate from this competitor. What's your experience been like? And my answer is, well, we always lose against them. You're going to be like, uh, okay, that puts me in a really, really tough spot. So I think asking a marketer or relying on a marketer to reposition or come up with some competitor differentiation that maybe doesn't exist is really hard until you're winning the battle first. I've been there as a marketer, like, hey, we want to attract this market more. Can you market to them? And you're like, oh, we we haven't sold to them before. Like, I don't really know what why they like us. Like, it almost feels like putting the cart before the horse. That's the expression. Um, where it's like, you're asking me. <laughs> just took way long, way too long for me to think of. And then as I was saying it, I was like, I don't know if this is right. Uh, but you're asking me to just make up stuff. Like that is essentially. And sometimes in marketing, you 
like when the new feature launches, hopefully you've done your beta testing and hopefully you've got some interviews. But sometimes if you haven't, I guess it's just make up stuff time. But that's what's always so frustrating. I feel like about marketing, it, it feels like a lot of times we're tasked with making stuff up because the company doesn't value doing the research first, talking with customers, doing beta testing. So appreciate you calling that out because that really hit home of like, yeah, I've, I've had to just make up stuff before because there wasn't anything substantive there. Not in an attic. And like ultimately, that shouldn't be a question for for you or a head of marketer or for growth. That question should be directly or directed rather at the VP of sales. Hey Ben, why are why are we losing to X Y Z competitors seventy five percent of the time? And it's going to be one of three things, and I promise you, it's going to be one of these three things. There are no nuances. There is no fluff. It's going to be we are way more expensive. We don't have this feature that they do. Or sometimes it could be a little bit of like, hey, we run pretty bad discovery because. Maybe it's not a good fit, a bad use case, whatever that may be. It's going to be one of those three things. And if you are on the leadership team at that company and I come back to you and I say, we lose this company 76% of the time because we're $12,000 overpriced than they are. And your response isn't, holy shit, we need to lower our pricing then. Then you are doing something wrong. It's not on your marketer. It's not, I need to go pay 10 BDRs and hope that five hit and I'm going to fire the other five. It's, you need to lower your pricing. Same thing with your product. Hey, I lose this competitor all day, every day because we don't have this feature and your prospect does, or sorry, your competitor does. Okay, let's get engineering on the call, like the phone here and figure out how quickly we can build out that product. Like, it's just like the elephant in the room stuff that's for whatever reason, companies just seem so adverse to address. Like our product is lagging. That's why we're losing. Let's increase this. Let's get better. Let's build the things we need. Hey, we're losing because our pricing is way too expensive. Let's change up our entire pricing model. But it's, it's never that. It's always, let's build out a one-pager. Let's put together a podcast or a webinar. Let's get a booth at a conference. It's like all this other shit that's like, okay, that might kind of help with some of the fringe stuff. But ultimately, if you really want to make impactful changes, you need to address kind of the, big, the biggest things in the room. And there's no better team to go to to understand why you're losing deals or why your company maybe directionally isn't going the way you want it to. Go talk to your sales team. Why do you lose deals? And they will tell you immediately, assuming they trust that they're not going to get in trouble for saying that the product is too pricey or isn't built well enough. Uh, they will tell you exactly what the problem is. And if you choose not to listen, then that's kind of on you. Yeah, kind of as we were talking about before, it's a lot of Band-Aid solutions when people don't want to address the actual problem at hand. And it feels like because it's a harder problem to solve. Like pricing is a freaking nightmare. It is so annoying trying to figure out your pricing structure and what works and takes a lot of research and work versus I think a lot of people just want like, an easy solution they can slap on, tell their board that they're working on it. So funny because I went to this episode, and I think we both did, and was like, this is going to be a great debate episode. And then as always, we end up being like, oh yeah, that I agree with that. Or like, I see that from your perspective. So sorry if this was not as debatey, but I think it was a good lesson into how each department like thinks about these things. And I think ultimately both agree that like anything, whether even on the sales side, like you can't do these small things to fix a bad process or a bad product or a bad system. I would say my biggest takeaways is marketing leaders, please stop thinking that like little things you're doing to the website or the brand are going to have massive impacts on winning deals. They won't. And sales leaders, stop expecting your marketers to like cover up for a shitty sales process. It will not work. Yeah. No, I think that sums it up great. Well, this was fun doing our first one back. How did it feel to be back then? Oh, great. I had a lot of fun as always. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what's worse is your remembrance of how like sayings are supposed to go or your spelling, but um, either way, it's good. It's, good. it's good to be back. This is why you can't ask marketers, at least me, for one-pagers because something will be spelled wrong. Quick funny story before we end. 
And almost every blog post or LinkedIn post I publish, one of our E's who's not been, bless his heart, Eric, sends me a Slack message is like, hey, you spelled this wrong. So this is, if you're relying on marketing, do everything. You're going to get things spelled wrong. On that note, thanks everyone for tuning in for our first episode back. Super excited. If there are any debates, like are you, are you having a debate with your head of sales? Like, let us know. Maybe we can reenact it live. See what it'd be like. Um, just stay for more episodes.